HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. For more information, visit mofad.org. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we will be talking about a comprehensive report titled Crop to Table from Consumer Reports that details pesticide use in this country. Joining us on the line um, is Dr. Urvashi Rangan, who oversaw the drafting of the report during her time as the Executive Director of Consumer Reports Food Safety and Sustainability Center. Later on the show, we'll be joined by Ben Turley, co-founder of The Meat Hook, a Brooklyn-based whole animal butcher shop. But before we turn to our discussion on pesticides, I want to run through some of the big, biggest food policy and industry stories from the past week. First up, um, in Italy, a bill is under consideration that would criminalize parents who feed their children a vegan diet uh, with up to one year in prison and more if it leads to a diet-related illness. The bill suggests that the diet is reckless and lacks the essential nutrients needed for growth. To say the least, 2016 just keeps getting weirder, and as my associate producer Taylor would say, what a time to be alive. Next up, the FDA is taking heat for the recent ruling on substances generally recognized as safe, or GRASS for short. On Friday, the FDA ruled to protect the existing GRASS standards that allows chemicals to be used in food without research on their safety. No surprise here, but consumer safety groups throughout the country are less than pleased about the FDA's decision. Um, they really, the FDA, the agency really missed the, 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 the theme of the summer, which uh, is knowledge is power when it comes to food labels. Moving forward, I have two words for you. Hemp maize. That's right. 
Farmers in Tennessee have made a hemp maze to bring awareness and family fun to industrial hemp farming. If you recall from our episode industrial, previously on industrial hemp, Tennessee is one of two dozen states to have legalized cultivation of hemp and set up research programs through the 2014 Farm Bill. The big kahuna for hemp advocates and farmers is going to be getting hemp off the controlled substance list. We think this hemp maze should make the New York Times 52 places to visit this year. And if if you do uh, go, please, please take pictures and send them to us at Eat Matters HRN. And finally, yesterday, the Washington, D.C.-based Capital Area Food Bank announced that they will refuse donations of junk food from retailers, including everything from candy to cakes to soda. The food bank is one of the largest hunger-fighting organizations in D.C., and it serves about 500,000 people. In a statement, the food bank said the decision is, quote, part of a larger national shift that acknowledges solving hunger isn't always as simple as providing people with more calories. We here on Eating Matters couldn't agree more with this decision as we are big believers that not all calories are created equally. Generally speaking, most food banks are reticent uh, historically to turn food away. So this announcement demonstrates huge progress in the public health and anti-hunger communities coming and working together towards a common goal. And that wraps up our news segment for today. Be sure to tweet or direct message us at Eat Matters HRN if you would like to include a particular policy update or have thoughts on the ones we discussed today. This break is brought to you by Bad Citizen, and this track is called eponymously Bad Citizens. Now I want to turn to our feature story today about pesticides and produce. Joining us on the line to dive into this issue is Dr. Urvashi Rangan, a food safety and sustainability expert. Dr. Rangan has her PhD in environmental science from John Hopkins University and until recently was the executive director of the Consumer Safety and Sustainability Group for Consumer Reports. Urvashi, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Jenna. Um, when did wide? Let's just start at the beginning. Um, when did widespread usage of chemical pesticides begin in the U.S. and why? Well, really, after World War II, um, when we developed a lot of chemical warfare, that became the time during that sort of agricultural revolution where we started using a lot of chemicals in agriculture. Um, you know, it's thought of a short, as a shortcut way to deal with pests and weeds. And really what it was was a lot of the chemical warfare agents we had developed for warfare um, diluted down uh, so they could kill pests. A lot of them were neurotoxins, um, 
and had a lot of potent toxicity. Uh, A lot of those have been banned now today, but still the march goes on and we have a lot on the market. Um, And most of our agriculture today is grown with it. Um, Chemical warfare doesn't really make me hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, what what pesticides are used today and what types of crops in particular are sprayed with um, those pesticides? Well, there are a number of different types of pesticides that are still used and developed. I mean, their primary purpose is always to attack bugs, insects, or weeds, and usually you can bank them as pesticides or herbicides. People have probably heard of glyphosate. That's a widely used uh, pesticide today, which, while arguably has less toxicity than some of its predecessors and ancestors that were used, a lot more of it is used. So um, there's still um, concern with it. And Uh, It's used as a burn-down ingredient. We know a lot of these pesticides are nerve agents, so they affect nervous systems. Um, When we take a look at what those effects are in humans, it's actually the workers themselves who have been applying these pesticides for years, and even their families and their children, just from coming home from the farm and being covered in pesticides and their kids being exposed to that, that can be a problem. And that's how we learned about um, the long-lasting effects, uh, neurotoxic effects, carcinogenic effects, IQ deficits, um, and these are a variety of health effects that have been tracked in farmers and their families for a long time. So lots of different pesticides on the market, mm-hmm. uh, lots of different health effects, and we haven't really gotten into environmental or ecological effects in the long term, but they have those too. So in terms of the types of crops, though, is it is it... All, can we just pretty much assume that if it's not organic, all variety of produce are sprayed? The analysis that we did looked at residues at the end of the line. And one thing we weren't able to do in our analysis was to incorporate what's used at the beginning of the line. So um, we did publish a report on pesticide risk and really with regard to the consumer end and consumption, um, in those commodities, green beans take the top of the list in terms of residues with the most toxicity. Um, 200 times their next uh, next one up in the vegetables. So that's, wow. that's one we say, you know, you should always eat green beans organic if you can. Right. That said, there's a lot of different options for a lot of different things. Um, peaches and nectarines are at the top of the fruit list. There's about five and five in each list um, that we think people absolutely must get organic for. Other than that, um, people can choose, uh, you know, a lot of different, even conventional varieties and get low pesticide residue risk from those vegetables and fruit. And I want to get into some advice for consumers a little bit later on in the program. But um, first, can you kind of just sketch out for us, sort of like do a verbal diagram about how pesticides spread throughout our environment and who um, and what they tend to affect? Yeah, I think people don't realize, and um, it was actually a theory of the military, too, where if you just dump chemicals on your property with your fence line, um, you're kind of free to do that because it didn't go anywhere. I mean, this was decades ago, and now we realize, of course, whatever you put in the ground 
um, can ultimately spread and run off and rain and water push things along in the environment and then um, water can evaporate and rain can come down contaminated with a variety of things. So the closer you are to the source of the pesticide use, um, the more problematic these things become in terms of your air and your water um, being potentially contaminated. But that said, things can also uh, run downstream, and we know that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, and and while we're not talking about fertilizer use, um, the same principle applies for runoff and contamination uh, downstream. What government agencies um, are responsible for oversight of pesticide usage and under what authority? Um, it's it's really EPA that deals with the toxicity of pesticides mm-hmm. and um, reviews the sort of tox profiles of pesticides, usually gives them a classification, um, whether they're known carcinogens, probable human carcinogens, animal carcinogens, or unknown. Um, and they really, they, they used to have four lists. They've sort of changed that up into an A, B, C, D list. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are numbers associated with it. There are also tolerances that can't be exceeded. Uh, for residue limits that EPA sets. Now, a lot of those limits are old and that don't incorporate the most modern-day science that we know. But that's the, the structure that's set up for pesticide uh, use and oversight. Um, California arguably can go even above and beyond EPA, and I think it does in a lot of cases in terms of uh, restrictions or limits. Um, does the FDA have any authority to weigh in on these issues? I would assume that they have to have some role or, or place at the table. The, the FDA really doesn't deal in terms of regulatory um, control of pesticides. They do test for pesticide residues, mm-hmm. and um, they look at a number of different crops and food products. Um, and test for residues over periods of time, which is actually enormously helpful um, for a group like Consumer Reports to be able to look at and see where um, hazards are being identified in patterns um, in the food supply. And that data that FDA generates can be really helpful toward that. Okay, so... um So it seems like the EPA has sort of primary responsibility. Um, How does that agency determine if a a pesticide is toxic or not to humans um, and what the potential health effects would be? Yeah, toxicology is a really interesting field in that um, we primarily look in animal studies to kind of gauge whether something's going to be toxic or not. The notion of whether something's toxic... um, according to EPA, really falls along the lines of doing certain animal tests, seeing where and how much differential there is, say, in tumor formation between control animals and testing groups and um, or any other health effect that you might be looking for in the animal population. 
it doesn't mean that the human population is going to get that exact same problem, but it is really indicative that there's a concern. So if you see increases in cancer rates among treated animals compared to the controls that don't get any pesticide treatment, um, that's a concern. Mm-hmm. Then when you take a look at the human data, any epidemiology study tends to form what we call a causation, uh, uh, tends to form an associative uh, relationship. You can tell something is associated with something, so exposure to a pesticide is associated with a certain type of cancer or vice versa. So you can't prove causality. You can just prove the link. But right. that's why in toxicology today you have to take the animal studies and the human studies and the cell studies and really paint a picture. EPA is trying to work to modernize the way they do things, um, but they we are nowhere near where we need to be in terms of um, the dimensionality we are applying to how we evaluate chemicals for toxicity um, and making sure that we're using all the kind of modern science that we do. And at the end of the day, there is a value judgment call that has to be made when you're doing risk. You understand what the science is and where it is, and it'll never really be 100% certain. The idea is you're getting ahead of the game before you have sick people or dead bodies um, to be progressive and preemptive about harm. Um, What the the report talks about kind of um, complications from being exposed to a mixture of pesticides. So um, realizing that the EPA, their determination um, factors are maybe not as modern as we would like them to be. Um, can you explain what happens when, what, what the complications are when there is exposure to a mixture of pesticides and what is being done to measure those effects? Yeah, those are called multiple exposure effects. And frankly, that's the world we live in is really a world of multiple exposures. And it's perhaps one of the biggest disconnects between how we establish toxicity today where we really do it one by one. We look at the toxicity of one chemical and what that does. But what we know is if you're exposed to a number of different chemicals um, in the same class or, for that matter, a number of different heavy metals um, or or both, that it, they can have synergistic effects even in combination. That is, their effect is even bigger than... Um, each effect some together. And um, I guess someone could argue that maybe sometimes they're negated, and in certain cases you might see that mm-hmm. as well. Um, but the issue really is we don't assess toxicity in that kind of broader um perspective, which is actually where reality is. And so, again, it's all the more reason to take precaution um, and set cautious limits because you know that people are likely exposed um, either to that particular substance and other things, and so it would be at greater levels, not just that one thing, um, or that they're exposed to a variety of that type of chemical, in which case the actual exposure could even be greater. And just just circling back to um, the reason why why you say that you can't prove causality in a lot of these studies is that because it's the simply ethics <laughs> you can't you you can't knowingly expose uh, people to chemicals in order to study the effect. 
That's right. I mean, in, in a lot of cases, if you think something's a carcinogen, then you're not really ethically um, uh, all right with running a study in humans, and right. you have to really run that study in animals. Now, that said, epidemiology isn't causation because... Usually, it's already happened. If you're doing a retrospective study, you can do a prospective study in the forward direction, but usually a lot of epi studies are in the reverse direction, and so you're really saying, well, what happened here? Right, okay. We had a disease incidents. Now, let's go ask everybody where their exposures were. Um, so the level of certainty just isn't as high, and you can't prove that something caused something. You only have a two-way link. The way to cause the the way to establish the one way link is you you want to administer exposure and right. see what you get and so that's why not ideal studies are so important yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> not ideal for humans um, I'm going to ask a, a a question that I'm like not sure if I really want to know the answer to but um, I'm going to ask it anyways are okay. there <laughs> are there any pesticides on the market today? that haven't been tested and approved for use by the EPA? Uh, EPA allows companies to submit their testing data for safety purposes. They do a little bit of testing themselves as well. The pesticides that don't go through a registration process with EPA, and, you know, just to say that that process is not enough these days. It doesn't require enough. It doesn't have enough independence in it. All of that needs to be beefed up. But we need that kind of regulatory oversight, and we actually need an increase of that. The pesticides that are not bound to be registered, at least in, a, in an administrative way with the EPA and have data submitted to the EPA, are the biopesticides, um, and they are filed in a different camp. And this it kind of brings up organic and the use of horticultural oils, for example, and other natural-based um, substances that the EPA makes a distinction in terms of toxicity and doesn't require um, the same level of substantiation that they do from other pesticides. So there is a family of those that doesn't go through um, that type of registration. Okay. Okay. So we're going to take a quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, we're going to dig deeper into the role of organics um, in reducing pesticide use and what you as a consumer can do to limit your exposure. Music for this commercial break is brought to you by Bad Citizen, and this track is called Watch It Fall. Hi, this is Peter Kim, the executive director of MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. We're a nonprofit founded by Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues here on the Heritage Radio Network. And we want to take people on a learning adventure through the world of food. We just opened MOFAD Lab, our gallery space at 62 Bayard Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where we are currently showing flavor, making it, and faking it. Flavor features some very cool sensory interaction. Flavor tablets deliver tastings of vanilla and umami. 
And the Willy Wonka-inspired smell synth lets you compose over half a million different flavors. So come on by and visit MoFad Lab. We're open five days a week, and tickets are $5 for kids and $10 for adults. Learn more about the Museum of Food and Drink at MoFad.org. back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Dr. Ravashi Rangan, from, formerly from Consumer Report, about the organization's comprehensive report, From Farm to Table, which examines pesticide use on produce and its effects. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about, about um, where, so w- w- the report um, evaluates produce, uh, and I'm wondering, is it just produce sold in conventional settings like grocery stores, or did it, does it also include um, produce sold at farmers markets? So, in other words, uh, can, can we? Yeah. Oh, sorry. So, another. I was going to also ask if we can assume that local produce or produce grown at least by smaller farming operations are the, are those crops sprayed less than others. Uh, I just threw see. a lot of questions at you. I don't think that the sampling set that USDA did necessarily makes that delineation. I think that uh, we evaluated the USDB, USDA's pesticide residue database called the PDP, and every year they go around and uh, at they really focus on 12 crops a year, but this thing's been going on for a long time, so they have a lot of good data in it. Um, they look at conventionally grown uh, produce. They look at organically grown produce. So the delineation is really there. I can't tell you more about whether it's local or not, um, or local to what. You know, it's a national survey. But that said, we they definitely look at the differences in production type. And when we took a look at all of that residue data, and really there's thousands and thousands of residue data, and we crunched it through uh, a dietary risk index um, that was developed by uh, Dr. Chuck Benbrook, um, and then also took a look at cancer risk on top of that as well. We did a few other things. Um, you can definitely see a difference between the residue risk that we find on organic produce versus conventional. Uh, organic's always lower. It's always in the very low risk category um, across the board. Conventional has a lot more variability to it. Um, some conventional is a lot less than others, even within the same category within the same produce type. So that was really interesting for us to see and even look at some country differences in conventional production. Um, And that's what we did was sort of evaluate that whole thing and kind of provide a little bit of a roadmap to understand where you could get um, better better choices in produce, whether organic or conventional. So, and and the report definitely is very clear on its um, drive towards organic, uh, especially if you don't really want to think about it and and have to sort of evaluate each individual item. Um, and indeed, we've seen organic food, you know, has really ra- uh, risen in popularity. It's in fact the fastest growing sector of the U.S. food industry. Right now, but I think that there's still a little bit of confusion among consumers about what organic actually means. So, can you um, give us a, an overview uh, defining the designation 
Yeah. Um, so organic is something that is managed by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and there is a set of legal standards behind it, and there is uh, inspection and verification that's required in order to use the organic label. Um, the Organic Food Production Act was passed in 1990, and it sort of had the bones of what the principles of organic were going to be in this law and this regulation. And uh, it prohibited genetically engineered ingredients. It prohibited sewage sludge from being used as fertilizer. That's human <laughs> municipal solid waste. Yes. Um, it prohibited the use of um, animal byproducts, um, and a lot of that has to do uh, with... Um, the transfer of, of, of uh, diseases, including mad cow. Right. Um, there's also um, a no irradiation. There's a prohibition on irradiation. You can't irradiate things. And um, and a few others. There is an almost ban on antibiotics. There's a few little loopholes in there. And some we've rolled back, actually, over time, the use of tetracycline and streptomycin on apple and pear trees, for example, no longer goes on in organic production. It still does in conventional for fire blight, which is a very terrible disease, um, and there's not a lot of tools against it. But mm -hmm. that said, we never felt it was appropriate to have that use in organic production. So organic is those things. Now, people think uh, organic should require um, maybe a local component to it, or is it local, or is it even produced in the U.S.? That's not part of organic mm -hmm. um, law and regulation. And um, while some people sort of are critical of organic for that, and um, uh, indeed for worker fairness, it doesn't really include anything about worker fairness. It's finally starting to get the bones of some animal welfare standards in, but it still needs to sort of continuously improve in that area over time. Right. There have been other labels that have come into these spaces, and you you often see organic together with some of these other labels that mean even more than organic. So there's a lot to organic. Right. It's not everything in terms of sustainability, and so it's important to know what it is so you don't feel cheated by it. Right. But um, it, there are required sets of standards it does have to meet. One of the things that I was surprised in learning is that there are some chemicals that can actually be used in organic agriculture. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. There is a um, National Organic Standards Board set up that is so its statutory authority uh, is to review materials that are allowed in organic production. And really, it's about synthetic materials um, or artificial materials, whatever you want to call it, or chemicals um, that can be used. Um, the list started out small, and I have to say it's grown over time. And uh, we've been critical, and Consumer Reports has, of the management of that list. Um, it seems like once something gets on that list, it can stay on for a long time. Now, that said, I just told you about an example where we rolled off antibiotics, and it isn't mostly pesticides. Most of that list has to do with processed foods and ingredients that can be used in processed foods that are synthetic. So that's really where that... Um, fight is taking place and where it has the most significance. In terms of pesticide use, you know, there is pest control in organic, and it does sometimes allow for certain um, tools to be used. Most of those are sort of bio-based. Mm -hmm. um, there are just a few exceptions to that, but that said, it's pretty good, and then if you think about 
uh, where it's hitting, organic pesticides are on the whole um, much less toxic than the pesticides that are being used on conventional produce today. And that's the other thing our risk index, um, along with Chuck Benbrook's analysis, has shown is that um, organic produce simply is sprayed with pesticides and, and contains residues at the end. Uh, that are far less toxic than conventional produce. One of the arguments that I often hear in opposition to uh, organic farming farming practices is that it's impossible to grow the amount of food that we need given our current population on this planet using only organic practices. Do you agree with this claim? No. (laughs) I Um, didn't think so. (laughs) (laughs) And I actually... um, I actually just moderated a very interesting panel at the Aspen Ideas Festival, and I'd encourage anybody who's interested in that issue to take, to um, search that panel. It would be like Aspen Ideas and Feeding 9 Billion People Sustainably. And I had some really interesting guests, including Ricardo Salvador from the Union of Concerned Scientists. We just had him um, on uh, last week. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And or two weeks ago, yeah. from the Bread Lab, who's really great in a week. A geneticist who's got a whole um, bread testing lab and is trying to deal with local cultivars and and yields and things like that. The fact of the matter is that there are so many principles embedded in organic that are supportive of really just proper stewardship of our soil, of our water, of our environment, and. You know, just taking fertilizers for a minute, um, most conventional production is grown with synthetic fertilizers, provides rapid nitrogen into the soil. It disrupts the entire ecology of the soil. Uh, it runs off the farm because the plants just simply can't take up that amount of nitrogen, um, and it's what leads to things like algae blooms and bacterial problems downstream down the line. Um or even the CDC is issuing advisories in certain lakes because of this type of runoff. Um, and in, in many ways, it robs the soil of so many things that help the soil um, live. And because mm-hmm. soil does live and it has a whole bacterial system and nutrients are all coming from the soil. What the, so whatever you're growing in it, if that soil has no nutrients, it's all up to you to put the nutrients into the soil. So it's this self-fulfilling sort of prophecy if you get into fertilizing with chemicals over and over again because the soil itself isn't doing anything. It's just acting as a dead medium. That's not what soil is. And, in fact, healthy soil will make for healthy plants and better pest control and less runoff and uh, better resilience to climate change and better carbon sequestration. Um, Deborah Garcia did a really beautiful movie called Symphony of the Soil, which um, really gets into this for anyone who's who's interested in, mm-hmm. in what's going on at the in the ground at that kind of molecular level. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the EPA, my, I understand the EPA is currently evaluating the effects of glyphosate, which we touched on a little bit earlier in the program, and the results of this report have, have been delayed. Um, What is your take on the situation and the potential repercussions if the agency does in fact find the chemical to be carcinogenic, given its widespread use? 
Yeah, I mean, um, and just to sort of back the cart up, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is the World Health Organization, has already classified glyphosate mm. as a class 2A uh, carcinogen. So, you know, just what, what does that mean, term, by the way? What is a class 2A carcinogen? It's a probable human carcinogen. Okay. Um, so it really does have an international uh, cancer classification. That alone is significant. And, um, uh, and the res, I mean, in terms of, um, glyphosate, there's, there's, there's sort of a two-pronged issue. There's the human health side of it. Mm-hmm. There's also the environmental and ecological side of it. Um, this, this, the same with many, for, chem, many, many of these pesticides, right? That's the similarity between many of these pesticides that we've been talking about. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, um, they lose their, their effectiveness over time. It's just the nature of the beast. Um, antibiotic use is very similar. You develop resistance over time. Bacteria are designed to resist things that try to kill it. So mm-hmm. are pests, and they can mutate much faster than we humans can um, to resist things over time. So glyphosate has been um, used hand-in-hand with a lot of the GMO crops, like corn and soy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's used as an herbicide to keep the weeds down, and the crops are designed to resist the toxicity of the pesticide. So that's sort of the science behind it all. Uh, but what's in fact happened is that it's led to resistance of these weeds and even more so creation of what's called super weeds, which literally are these uh, huge reed-like weeds that are uh, puncturing tractor tires. Um, and now those crops can't really be grown reliably with glyphosate uh, to keep the weed control down. They have to now move to other more toxic pesticides um, that they're doing. Glyphosate's also been used as a burn-down ingredient for a lot of grains like wheat. And um, instead of, at the end of the harvest, instead of picking it up physically or turning it into the soil, the crop is kind of sprayed with glyphosate, so it just sort of falls down. <laughs> it's not really a smart approach, um, and, and we really should, should be rethinking why we would just douse uh, the land and the earth with these chemicals. Right. Uh, unnecessarily, uh, because their effects are are far and wide, and I think we know about the monarch butterflies and GMO crops, and maybe we don't understand exactly what the etiology is, but we know that populations of monarch butterflies uh, in Oregon in particular went down drastically. Um, Bees have gone down drastically, especially between 2012 and 2013, a third of the bee colonies vanished in this country. Wow. Um, And... That's not just glyphosate, but probably the use of neonicotinoids, which, you know, these pesticides are all thought to be less toxic. And then at the end of the day, we have to use more of them. Right. So uh, it can't just be that sort of one-dimensional approach. And really, at the end of the day, organic cultivates an entirely different way of thinking about this that cultivates nature to do it. You know, in some ways, when you think about cancer therapy and the boosting of the immune system as the sort of cutting edge technology of boosting what's good mm-hmm. to really deal with the bad instead of trying to kill off the bad. Right. Um, right. And, and in some ways, agriculture needs a revolution of the same sort. Um, so, speaking of advice for consumers, your advice, it seems like, is buy organic when possible. Um, do you want to expand on that? 
Yeah, I do. And I think, you know, organic is important in sort of the fundamentals of how you kind of want your food grown. Um, are there other things that, that add meaning to that and other labels? There are, and there are a lot of worker um, fairness labels uh, that are trying to accomplish the same thing. There's also uh, biodynamic farming, which is great, even perhaps arguably better than organic in terms of standards. Um, Non-GMO, just for everybody, doesn't have anything to do with pesticides. It doesn't have to do with organic production. It, it means one thing mm-hmm. and, and one thing only. And so it's important to understand that absolutely any pesticides could be used on something that may be grown as a non-GMO crop. That's um, a good point. You know, sustainability is is dimensional and and looking at any one attribute is not the way to do it. Organic takes a lot of those attributes, but not all of them. Um, right. Justice Certified is a great uh, fair trade label that not only deals with worker wages and fairness and protections, but also pesticide exposure. Um, there are other uh, fair trade labels now in this country, um, fair trade, fair food, uh, responsibly grown. They tend to deal more with wages, all important issues, all worth a little more than what we get uh, without those labels. Mm-hmm. But um, our report really delineates the differences among those labels. And really the best ones are dealing with not just the wages of the worker, but their health as well, because the health of of them and who produce our food is part of the health of the production system, and it matters. Right. So those labels in addition to organic, and I think that's a really important point um, that you raised, that organic is not necessarily the end-all and be-all because you could have a farmer um, demonstrating responsible and sustainable farming techniques that doesn't have an organic designation, and that's where I think the advice comes in to kind of know your farm or know your food. So, um, if, so would you say a good way to kind of categorize it is, you know, if you're, if for the, for the busy consumer, shopping organic by purchasing organic items is a, a kind of a, a quick way to ensure that you're reducing your pesticide exposure. And, um, it's not the only way for, if you want to, yeah, if you want to dive I mean, a little I bit think deeper. In terms of pesticide exposure, it's the most reliable way. Okay. Um, yeah. I think there are some other labels out there. Whole Foods has their own label that they've been sort of working on. Um, Stemilt has a label that they sort of have. Um, there's an, a sustainably grown label. There's a Rainforest Alliance label. All of these do some pesticide management, but none of them do what organic does. Organic is really, I think, in terms of label programs, um, the, almost the best in terms of pesticide management, perhaps only beaten by biodynamic. Mm-hmm. Then in terms of some of the other things like worker protections and worker fairness and wages, there are these other labels that that add on to organic that organic simply doesn't cover at this point. And I know we're not talking about meat products, but yes, animal just welfare produce, yeah. labels would, of course, add um, they and do add more value to organic alone uh, on meat products, too. Okay, great. All right. And then um, really quickly, where can, uh, can, where can our listeners go to access uh, Consumer Reports' fabulous report that has all of this information and, um, and even more than we can possibly talk about in 30 minutes' time? 
Yeah, thanks. Um, you can go to greenerchoices.org, and that's uh, where a lot of these reports are housed. This is We've been talking about pesticides today, but we have reports like this kind of looking systemically at the whole thing and um, where sustainable lines are, where they're not, um, and and how to understand that and then how to buy better. And we have them for beef and shrimp and a bunch of other things. So greenerchoices.org. All right. Awesome. Urvashi, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Jenna. Thank you. All right. All right. All right. All right. (laughs) It's now time for our segment on startups where we feature an innovative and exciting new food company at the end of each episode. Today, I am pleased to introduce Ben Turley, co-founder of The Meat Hook, a Brooklyn-based butcher shop. Ben, do we have you on the line? Yeah, I'm here. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining. Um, so tell us about the Meat Hook. What What is it you guys do, and how long have you been operating? Um, we have been open since November 2009 um, in Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. And kind of the, the whole mission statement behind uh, our business was to create a a place for people to buy to buy meat with absolute transparency about where every product's coming from. Um, so we made a point to, you know, put a window on the walk-in so you can see inside and do all of our work in front of our customers. So you can ask any question and you know you're going to get an answer. Wow. Um, why did you decide to get into the business of butchering and how did you go about it? Um, roundabout way. Um, like most people with an English degree, uh, <laughs> I'm looking for work in anything other than English or teaching. Um, Perfect. Yeah. Um, I had been working in, uh, in restaurants since I was 15 and trying to duck out of having to go to church. Uh-huh. So um, it was just kind of a natural evolution of, you know, working in restaurants and then wanting to learn something new and just keep my mind moving and uh, ended up meeting my business partner, Brent, Mm -hmm. uh, down in Richmond, Virginia, working at a butcher shop down there. And then we just kind of, you know, once we learned a little bit more, we were like, well, we want to be doing whole animal and working directly with farmers, which Virginia really wasn't quite ready for. And New York was the only place where that was about to really kick off. Yeah. And you guys, um, I think, are largely responsible for this huge um, rise in popularity of, uh, I don't know, Brooklyn butcher shops. I feel like um, it. ever since the Meat Hook opened, there's been kind of other places sort of popping up trying to do what you guys are doing, which is great because I think the more people who can be um, sourcing in a way that you guys source, I mean, the better, right? But you guys are like the originals, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we, we, Brent and I helped open the very first one, uh, which is Marlowe and Daughters for uh, for Andrew Tarlow, mm-hmm. and the, the Diner Empire. And then, you know, within six months, we were like, this is great. We want to be doing this for ourselves. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how much influence I could say we have, but I <laughs> would definitely say that, you know, we well, have. Well, my opinion. I, I don't think any of us survives without, you know, 
there being more of us doing the same thing. So right, absolutely. You know, we kind of all have to be in it together yeah. to, to see if it actually works. So tell me a little bit about your standards for sourcing. Um, what are they? You know, do you not carry certain types of animals or have certain types of products? Um, you know, do you have like any designations or any guidelines around uh, geography, like any local um, per- parameters that you try to abide by? We we do try to abide by a, kind of a lot of rules, mostly you know kind of unspoken. We had uh, we had kind of developed the relationships with a couple farmers uh, before we started, and we were like, well, we want to work with these people. We want to be supporting this kind of agriculture, which was you know grass fed and grass finished. You know, mm-hmm. you see a a calf born out on pasture where there's you know not a vet in sight. It's, there, it's very naturally born, and it lives every single day out in those fields. Um, and it's never given any, you know, supplemental feed or anything like that. Um, and, agri- and meat agriculture is very, very difficult mm-hmm. to, to find that. You know, there's no yellow pages or website to, like, just kind of tell you all this information. Right. Um, so for us, it was, it was a lot of, like, knocking on doors um, upstate and just asking, you know, the one or two farmers we knew, like, do you know anybody, you know, raising lamb? Uh, do you know anybody doing, like, really great pastured chickens? And it was kind of just like a word-of-mouth Kind of kind of idea as far as what meats we try to try to carry we try to always have you know kind of the basics of uh, beef being our, our number one thing uh, really really great pork and then poultry uh, mm-hmm. we tried veal that did not take no. um, but other than that you know we we don't we don't have a I think a very like hard line ideal um, we try to stick as close to New York as we can. We don't want any real middlemen involved. Mm-hmm. We want to be able to talk to the farmer. It goes to the slaughterhouse. It comes directly to us, and I can tell you, you know, what day that animal was taken to the facility. I can tell you the guy working on the floor. Wow. I can tell you that, like, Debbie in the front office likes cannolis whenever you come visit her. <laughs> and I, I like being able to talk to our customers on that level. Yeah. Um, have you seen any... Uh any changes in the like supply as you have grown um has this been a challenge for you at all it has um i think you know in in all of the kind of you know the meat categories be it poultry beef pork it's a really really dominated field you know you're not it's like ducks for instance um 80 of all ducks produced are produced by four companies and wow, they're all huge agriculture operations um, and then local agriculture is really hard to come by. Long Island, for instance, was, you know, really famous for having duck farms. There were 31, I think, in, like, 1982, and now there's one left. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, you know, we try to try to support these guys as much as, as much as possible. And, you know, I think I got a little bit away from your question there, but... Um, I mean, you know, has it has it been challenging though? I mean, have you have your farmers come back to you and said like, we just we can't meet this demand um, at any point, especially as your the popularity of the meat hook has grown. It's it's become a little bit difficult just because it takes you know to raise a beef takes about three years. Yeah. So we can't just call call uh, our friend Lee and ask him to send another one. Right. Um, <laughs> but we have tried tried very very hard to be very communicative. So we are growing at the same rate as our farmers. Um, so we've had farmers invest in more land mm-hmm. as we're growing, so that we're kind of growing as a family Together. rather than you know the business dictating terms. It's more like let's have the conversation. How comfortable are you growing? 
how comfortable are you with having more animals around? Does that mean more labor on your end? Mm-hmm. And we kind of try to explore every avenue with, with the farmers we love and trust to, to see if we can make it happen together. Have you seen any changes in terms of consumer per- per- perception and behavior since you opened? With yeah, regards to the type of think, meat that they buy, yeah, yeah, I, th- I think I mean, like people are more savvy day by day, which is the the best part of it. Um, so, I think there's there's definitely been better buying habits. I mean, I think at first, you know, we started selling veal when we very first opened. I think within a year or two, we were kind of done with that because kind of taste had changed, and I think people had uh, learned a lot more about like what it takes to raise veal and yeah. didn't really have the taste for it ethically, right? Um, and we're happy to kind of grow and change with that. So I think a lot of, a lot of tastes have changed. And I think, you know, when people come in and they're like, yeah, but is, is it like certified organic? Is it put like grass fed, but is it grass finished? And like they know now the, you know, the jargon and they know the questions to ask to make sure they get the answer they want, which is great because the best part about our job here is that we can not just tell you, we'll just, like, show you. Right. Like, pictures on our phones where we take our staff up, you know, yeah. several times a year. And, you know, we want to be able to prove it to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are, you know, we are legit about what we're trying to get across. Um, question. Hit do, me. Do, are you ready for it? I'm ready. Do you have any animal tattoos, like, on um, your forearm? If so, I, how none many? None of any animals that we sell here. None? Okay. No, okay. no. <laughs> Only cats? <laughs> I, I, God, uh, not yet. Uh, I, I got blackout drunk and got a shark tattooed on me once. I don't know why, but I woke up the next morning with a pain on my side and I had a tattoo. <laughs> that is an amazing story, by the yeah, way. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So back to more relevant questions. Um, the couple more, the Meat Hook brand has become super popular um, in the past few years. You guys make insane sausages and sauces and all kinds of um, delicious things. Can people, especially for our listeners outside of New York, uh, access your products other than coming into the shop? Um, no, right now we've just been kind of, um, I, don't, I think you maybe know this, Jenna, but we, yes. we recently moved. So yes. we've been focusing all of our energies on just making sure we are as much a part of our local community as possible. Mm-hmm. We want to be the neighborhood spot. Um, so we're mostly concentrating on that. We get a lot of emails about it, and it is something we we are actively exploring to awesome. see if uh, we can get into shipping. Well, that would be um, I, great. I think people all across the country deserve to taste the deliciousness that is coming out of the meat hook. Thank you. <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to wrap it up to for um, have to wrap it up for today. But Ben, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Jenna. I appreciate Absolutely. it. Okay, for more information on the shop, you can go to the-meathook.com or better yet, stop by their brand new location at 397 Graham Avenue in Brooklyn. I want to thank both uh, Urvashi Rangan and Ben Turley for coming on the show today, and I want to thank our sponsors for their generous support. A reminder to our listeners that we will be on break for the next few weeks, but the new fall season kicks off on Wednesday, September 14th, so be sure to tune in then. Our show is produced with the help from Taylor Lanzette, and show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you to our engineer, Pierre Bienami. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on 
on Heritage Radio Network's website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook. And please find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liu, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.